Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is an actor that needs no introduction. I'm joined by Sylvester McCoy, Doctor Who himself, the star of the incredible Hobbit trilogy, so many different theatre productions. The man has lived, breathed and seen it all in the acting world. And I'm so thrilled with the interview that we do today and it will be with you in just a few minutes time. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, you know the score by now, I'd like to touch base and talk about my last episode. On episode 118, I was joined by Lara Jane Gallagher. We got to sit down and talk about her debut film, Clementine. An incredible chat, an incredible director, and an incredible movie. Since the interview, I've seen people all over social media tweeting me and Facebooking me and emailing me saying they've gone and checked out Clementine and absolutely loved it. It's been on video demand and people are saying they're really, really thrilled. They got to hear about it on the Mark and Me podcast and then gone and invested their time and really, really enjoyed the movie. And I'll share all those comments back with Lara herself because she'll absolutely love it. But let's get back to today's episode. As I just said, I'm joined by Sylvester McCoy. In my opinion, the best Doctor Who out there. If you don't agree, I'm sorry, but that's just my opinion. So let's do it. Here's me and Sylvester McCoy talking all things film. Thanks for joining me today, Sylvester, on the Mark and Me podcast. What I wanted to do today is take it right back to the very start. And at what age was it that you realised that you wanted to become an actor? Was it very young as a child? Yes, yes, it was actually. Um, I, I remember when I was about four or five, um, doing a, uh, falling off things uh, for the um, enjoyment of my friends, getting them to laugh. I was good at falling off things. <laughs> you were pro, were you? Yeah, I was kind of a silent movie comic uh, clown. That, that, I was born during the war. My, my mother, um, uh, my father w- w- died two months before I was born because he was a submariner. So my mother was a war widow. And in those days, they didn't have cinema. I mean, no, they didn't have television, but what they had was cinema. In, in Danoon, our local town, they had two cinemas and they showed a film for two nights a week, different film. So oh. every night, my mother took me as a little baby to the cinema. And so years later, when I, at the age of 27, when I was mistook for an actor and offered a job and took it, I discovered I had this bag full of skills, silent movie clown skills. And I can only think as a child, I was taking them all in in that darkened room with my mother as we watched Buster Keaton's Lon and Hardy's and Simon and Chaplin films. It was kind of a strange kind of thing. So sitting there watching those things with your mother, were you kind of in a mindset that then when you're at school that you were destined to become an actor or was there another subject that kind of your mother was kind of pushing you towards? Because not every parent is going to be fully supportive of someone becoming a musician or an actor when it's so hard to get into. Yeah, well, the problem was it wasn't quite as clear as that because see, at the age of eight, my mother ended up in a Dickensian lunatic asylum. Uh, so I, she wasn't pushing me anywhere, really. 
But I decided, well, because of my head teacher, Rosie O'Grady, she used to give us vocational talks when we were living. And she'd invite in doctors to talk about their jobs. She'd invite in, uh, there was the captain of the paddle steamer, the Jeannie Deans, and uh, the, the Waverley uh, on the Clyde, uh, the bin man, uh, the um, doc, yeah, you know, people would come and talk about their jobs. And afterwards she would ask, who would like to do that job? Well, when you've got someone up there enthusing about their job, I put my hand up for all of them. Anyway, one day the priest came and he talked enthusiastically about his job and I and Danny Sweeney put our hands up for that one. But something strange happened that day because Rosie O'Grady said, okay, you can have the afternoon off to go and see the priest and ask him to become a priest. Why? Do you like that? So we were delighted. You know, she hadn't given us the, uh, the, the afternoon off to go and see the captain of the paddle steamer. I'd quite like to have gone for that one. But anyway, yeah. an afternoon off, a living year old. So sunny day, Danny Sweeney and I, off we set to see to the rectory to see the priest. But by the time we got there, Danny Sweeney lost his bottle. And I was, you know, I thought, you know, you're a coward, cocky little bastard I was. So I said, okay. You, I'm going to, I'm going to become a priest because you're a coward. You don't want to do it. <laughs> so that was the great religious uh, road to Damascus I had was because Danny Sweeney bottled out. That was why I went off to become a priest, which turned out to be brilliant for me because it took me um, away from Dunoon, which was a small, petty bourgeois little town, um, a bit like Claregib. In Undermilk Wood, which is bugger all backwards, Hilaregi. <laughs> um, it was a bit like that, whereas I was locked up in a seminary, but the paradox was this being locked up introduced me to the whole wide world of music, art, travel, the lot, all in a seminary. And at what point did it actually become a reality that you thought, do you know what, I can make a living out of this and it's not just going to be these little roles or someone might give me this chance? What was it that was the turning point for you that made you become an actor and know that this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Well, it wasn't quite there. I wasn't quite there yet. My, uh, I was still, uh, I was off to become the Pope. That's what I was, my ambition yeah. was. To be. But then what happened was I decided not to become a secular priest, but a, a monk. So right. go deeper, deeper into this journey I'd made because Danny, uh, Danny um, Sweeney lost his bottle. And so I s wrote to the Dominicans. They wrote back. We filled out forms. They invited me to join. I went home. But a letter arrived when I got home saying, oh, mistake. You have to be 18 to become a monk. You're 17. So I had to go to the local school. Oh. So I went to the school and very shortly, it was a mixed sex school, I suddenly realised I didn't want to wear a skirt. I started chasing it instead. Yeah. And that was me giving up all hope of becoming a Pope. But <laughs> when I was training in the seminary, the, the, uh, the priest once told my granny who came to visit me that I should be an actor. So I was already performing in the ceremony. And, yeah. um, it, the, you know, the skill was there, whatever it was. But it wasn't until the age of 27 when I came to London. I ended up in the city of London. I hated it. The 60s arrived. You could drop out, become a hippie, which I did. Yeah. The op there was a theatre called The Roundhouse, which still exists, opening up. It was in the centre of the hippie revolution. And the, what they needed for the box office, who was a hippie who could count, I fitted the bill. I'd been in the city. So I went into the box office. And from that... Brian Murphy of George and Mildred Fame and various other great things mistook me for an actor and recommended me to a director. And that's how I became an actor. I love it. 
Now, many of my friends would absolutely go mental at me if I don't mention Doctor Who to you. I've and heard of it. A lot of my good friends would literally be probably ringing me and texting me saying, why did you not ask him about this? Why did you not ask him about that? Now, what I've always wondered is, when you did become Doctor Who, what was your mindset knowing that you had to take over from Colin Baker? Was it fear? Was it intimidating? Or were you full of confidence that you could do this role justice? Well, it was ignorance, really, because I, being an actor then, uh, you know, for quite a few years, I worked every time Doctor Who was on the television. Yeah. You might not believe this, but in those days, the videos were just coming in, video recording, but there was yeah. no recording normally uh, over the years, and it was only on once, it was never repeated, I never saw it, anyway. So I didn't know anything about Doctor Who. I had a distant memory of Patrick Troughton in the 60s. Yeah. So when I got the job, I didn't even know um, um, all my knowledge about Colin Baker was that he had been in The Brothers and I was a huge fan of him for being in The Brothers. I didn't know anything about his Doctor Who. I didn't, you know, complete ignorance. So I just took, they gave me the, uh, they gave me the, you know, the, the key to the TARDIS. Uh, they gave me the script and they said, get on with it. And um, Andrew Cartmel, luckily, was in the same boat as I uh, because he was a Canadian and he knew very little. He was, a, he was the uh, script editor. He knew very little about the previous Doctor Who. So we arrived without that baggage of, of, of the past. And so we just interpreted it from you know, a new beginning, our own new beginning and how we did it. Much to the annoyance of some a small group of you know, fanatical fans um, who don't like change. And many people, whenever you read the best Doctor Whos and the top fives and all this, you're always top. Everyone absolutely adored you in that role. You still, in the last few years, I've seen you at Comic-Cons, everyone's dressed up coming to you. How is it to kind of reflect and even process looking back on that time that you had in that role? Because people call you a legend, rightly so, for being that incredible Doctor Who for us all. Gosh, well, that's very nice of you to say. Um, I'm, I'm, it makes me very, very happy. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm absolutely delighted, but when I got the job, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know its past. I didn't know its history. I didn't know its future because it hadn't existed. And yes. you might find this hard to believe, but you can't travel in the TARDIS. Shh, don't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> you know, I couldn't go forward and see what the future would be. Uh, if you would have asked me then, would I be still involved uh, passionately uh, making Doctor Who Big Finish or being, you know, seeing um, fans all over the world? I would have thought... No, I didn't. I don't think so. This is just a job. No, I, it, it was um, it was extraordinary to get the job. It was a job that keeps on giving, really. And um, I'm so proud and delighted and absolutely pleased to hear what you just said about um, people liking what I did. And a lot of your work, obviously, has also been involved excessively in theatre, especially in productions, uh, many diverse ones. Do you miss those days of going and being on stage in the theatre? I know you've done it most recently, but now with the lockdown and us not being able to be in the same room, is that something that you'd love to do again in the future? Well, yes, I mean, I, I mean amongst all the uh, various different ways of um, telling stories in my business, theatre is the hardest work. Yeah, I mean, It is the most rewarding because the audience are there and you feel them, hear them, uh, you know, and touch them. Um, uh, but 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 it is hard, and I'm getting on a bit, and so I, I'm kind of not so keen to do theatre much anymore. I like doing television and film and radio audio, um, but I still get my kicks. 
um, theatrical gigs when I go to conventions. That's why I also love going to conventions because I love the Q&A bits. Uh, I love, get, you know, that thing of getting down and getting amongst the audience and entertaining them and making them laugh and question, you know, that is performing. And that gives me that tick. As to the lockdown, yes, that, I do miss that bit. But luckily there's a thing called um, uh, Cameo or Memo or very... And I, I kind of do those. So that kind of, I'm still using my skill. Do you know what I mean? I'm still yeah. using it a bit. It's not as much. But, um, I, you know, I can't wait to get back to meet the fans again, to travel the world and, you know, kind of entertain the fans. That's the one, I, the kick I really love. And to go from that size production on stage in a production of a theatre to probably one of the biggest productions in The Hobbit, Working with someone like Peter Jackson and people on that scale and that sort of just sheer volume, what was it even like to be on set of such a huge, huge production that for the rest of our lives will always be known as some of the best films of all time? Well, it was a great privilege, really. Yeah. But, 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 but I mean, having been, I've been working in film and television for quite a long time, you know, before I got. And so all it was was bigger. Yeah, you know that, that's all it was in a way. It was bigger. It was the same. The camera, crew, sound thing, but you know behind. But sometimes it was smaller. I mean, sometimes I was in a little green room, you know, battling invisible people and, and all that. But I, I started off in a, a great television, a brilliant television program years ago called Vision On, which was a program for the hard for the, for the for the hard of hearing and deaf and things like that. But it was a it was universal. It was for everybody, you know. Hardman um, uh, came out of Division On and various other great things. But in that, we were there for the invention of um, um, CS. I call it CSO Blue. Blue, uh, you know, uh, where the the background was green or blue, and you know, you invented things with it. And we actually played with that very early on, way back in the 70s. Um, we were playing with that. So when I got to do it in a big one uh, in, with The Hobbit, it was okay. I, I, I was okay with it. In fact, I was yeah. one of the few actors who it didn't phase. I mean, Ian hated it. I mean, poor Ian, when I first arrived, he'd been there for three months. Um, in, if you imagine, huge uh, um, studio. He was in one corner of that studio all by himself with little photographs of all the different dwarfs. So if you remember the opening scene where he's in the house of Bilbo Baggins and all yeah. crowded around, well, they, they were all on the other side of the studio in the set, the real set sitting there. He was all by himself with these photographs and little lights. And in his ear was a microphone, a speaker. So every time they spoke, uh, the light would go on and he'd look to them and speak back to it. And, and when he arrived, he said, when I, when I did this at first, he said, the first day I went, I can't, he cried, I can't do this. I've been an actor for all these years. This is not <laughs> acting. So when he saw me, when I arrived, I, he knew I was in his world. You know, I was there. He could see me. He could look into my eyes. He could hear yeah. me breathe. Uh, you know, he could touch me. There I was. So he was delighted that he had me there to act with him in those scenes. It's completely different, and I'm sure he was so, so happy just to have a human being to interact with again. Exactly, rather than a picture and something stuck in his ear. And one of your most recent roles, which we're here to promote at the moment, is The Owners. Now, this is yes. obviously a horror thriller 
that's been adapted from a graphic novel. I've not read the graphic novel, but I've been lucky enough to see the film and I think it's great. Well, thank you. I'm glad you did. How did this opportunity come about for you? Well, um, one of the, the casting department, or the casting uh, agency that cast me, got me cast for The Hobbit, uh, they, they phoned up and said, we, I think we should meet, you know, there's this French director. And as soon as he said someone, French director, I got very excited because yeah. um, I love to work with people from other countries, other, um, you know, like uh, I worked once with an Iranian director, principally because I thought that'd be fascinating because, you know, their, art, their way of looking at the world is utterly different from ours, you know, and, they, and the French, brilliant fr um, filmmakers, but they, they are much more European and we try in a way wrongly, I think, to be hang on to being like American, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. We, I would prefer we, we went the, um, you know, the European way. And so that was, for me, you know, the big tick in the box of, oh, I want to work with this man. I read the script. I love the idea. I also love the idea. It was, it, it would be different. The audience would not expect me to be doing something like I end up doing in the film, which we can't give away. No, I don't want to give any spoilers away because I think it's not fair for the listeners out there. But yeah. you, I'm a massive fan of Game of Thrones and to see Maisie Williams on screen was incredible every week. And when I saw this film and saw you getting to act alongside her, what was she like on set? Was she as great as I'd imagine? Oh, she's terrific. Yeah, she's yeah. amazing. Amazing Maisie Williams. Oh, Maisie, amazing Williams. She, she's quite extraordinary, really. I mean, because, you know, she'd been acting since she was quite young. She knows yeah. the business inside out. And I mean, I have such awe of her, um, you know. She, she, she was on the ball. She was on the ball for herself. She was on the ball for me. Um, she knew exactly what light should be where. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know just, I could have learned so much, you know, working with her, so good. Really, really, really impressive. Um, and great, and you know, bubbly little girl, but very serious when it came to the work. Really serious, bang, bang yeah. in there. That's awesome to hear, and I hope that a lot more people aspire to be like that because I think she's got such an amazing future ahead of her. So do I. I believe that it's not only just an acting. I think she could become a really good director and producer. She's got that thing about her. She knows it, the business. Bang. That's awesome. And with the things at the moment, obviously, it's not the most ideal world right now. There's opportunities that aren't going to be taken. What's the future looking like? Have you got anything in the kind of pipeline for the next couple of years that you're about to announce or that you can talk about or is it all top secret at the moment well no i mean there is um, a project that we were supposed to be doing but it's been uh, stopped curtailed by the coronavirus and that's um i was going to be working with um um rob zombie wow <laughs> yeah uh and we're supposed to be in hungry filming uh, that's all gone by the by at the moment but they're hoping to do it soon but it you know the virus just you know just can't can't say when we have to wait but they're very keen to carry out you know do it they hope to do it you know last october that didn't work they hope to do it in april and don't think that's going to work you know but they keep they're keen to keep doing get it do, going so that that'd be very exciting i'm looking forward to that also i've been at um, there's a, a short film um uh, that i've been asked to do by this um a young group of short filmmakers who i mean they're not small short filmmakers quite tall really but yeah, um, they are uh, uh this young lady's written this really lovely script it's a beautiful script um 
and I'm looking forward to maybe doing that. Again, it's in the lap of the coronavirus or the scientists who will get... I've had the first jab, but, yeah. um, I, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get the second one because I think I, uh, I hope soon. <laughs> My father's just had his first one. It's supposed to be three weeks and they're like told him three months. So it's Yes, quite- same here. Yeah, so... But now I've read today, i read today in the... Um, in the paper that in Israel, where they're very much ahead, uh, they've got 20% of their country, you know, kind of been vaccinated yeah. and all that. They've discovered that the first dose is not as strong as uh, the, um, they thought. Um, and so that, that's a bit worrying, really. And a question I ask everyone that's been on the podcast, it doesn't matter if it's an actor, a director, a musician, whatever they do as a career, but what advice do you give to people that listen to the podcast that want to become like yourself, an actor, and try and make a name for themselves or get into the business that is so hard to get into? That's it, really. I mean, I I didn't go to drama school. No. Partly because I used to walk past Rava and it looked like a bank. And it kind of, I thought, I don't want to, it kind of, I was too scared. I don't know, anyway, it come from the Highlands. I didn't really know much about theatre and what you did. So I, I got lucky. I mean, that's all I can say is get lucky. And, and in a way, how do you create that luck? Well, I would think what you've got to do is get yourself a job in the theatre or, or, or in the cinema or, or, or you know, on a, a, you know, a film set somehow. I don't know, you know, sweeping the floor get in, get through that door somehow, get through the door, and then um, try and then get lucky. I mean, I got through the door by getting the job in the roundhouse and the box office, and then I was in the world, and Brian Murphy used to come and collect the tickets I was selling for the shows, and he we used to just loon around to keep ourselves, you know, entertained, and he thought I was an actor, so he, he recommended me to Ken Campbell, the great genius Ken Campbell. And so that's how it began, but it's luck. Yeah. It's so hard. I mean, you, you know, passion, luck. You, you, it's, it's a vocation. You, you, you've got to give up uh, everything for it, really. You can't just do it a bit here and a bit there. Yeah, you must... no half-heartedness. I mean, what I, I mean, I was also part of a thing called the Kenka. The Fringe was just kind of bubbling up and starting then. And what we did was, we, a group of us, we went into pubs and did shows in pubs. And, you know, we asked the landlord if we could do a show, and then we, we could ask if we could go around and make a collection, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and that, that's, um, I mean, that, that's the way to do it. Get a yeah. group of friends, practice, work out stories you want to tell, um, and, 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 and uh, go, go to places, go to old people's homes, but make sure you social distance, wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> Right, we have literally a couple of minutes left, so I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, it's been an pleasure. absolute pleasure to have you on. I can't wait to see people's reactions to the owners. I think you'll surprise them in that role. I think people aren't used to seeing that sort of side to you, so I can't wait for that. And well, I'm... you know, it was, I got Best Actor um, I was award. Uh, there was a festival the, uh, in London, the uh, Fright Fest in London. Yes, yes. And the, the film was up for Best Film. It got nominated but didn't sadly win. But um, I, I was up for Best Actor and I won. That's incredible. So I, I forgot to mention that to people. Quite, yeah. <laughs> well, well done on that. But like Thank I said, I, um, I'm hoping that the world eventually gets back to normal and some of these yeah. roles that you've talked about that might happen, 
I hope they do and they come in and I wish you all the luck for the future and just want you to know how much I appreciate your time today. Pleasure, thank you. So there it is. There's me and Sylvester McCoy talking all things film. He is an incredible guy. He's one of those guests and I say it every time I record but I could have spent hours talking to. So down to earth, so lovely, so humble and just a really lovely gentleman. As you heard there, he's talking all about his new film, The Owners, with Maisie Williams. What an incredible actress, and if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, you'll know just how great she is. And it seems like she's going on to more and more things. And as he said, we might get to see her doing some directing in the near future. But they're talking all about the brand new film, The Owners, and that's out literally on Monday on digital and DVD. I can't wait for you to see the film. I've been lucky enough to see an advanced screening and it's unbelievable. It's really good fun and I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what happens but I'm sure you'll absolutely love it. Right then everyone, the response on my social media channels over the last few weeks has been insane. I've seen some incredible new followers. I've seen loads of people jumping in and signing up on Patreon. I've given away some of the best posters out there. You've seen my Vice Press competitions over the last few weeks. It's been madness. And they haven't stopped. Now, they don't do anything right now from any of the incredible artists they offer for Doctor Who. But we can tie it into time travel. And they've been good enough to give me a Back to the Future 2 promo poster. And it's gorgeous. And the Japanese variant. So jump onto my social media after listening to this episode to find out how to enter this competition. While you're there, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Go on markandme.com. And if you really want to support the podcast, go on my Patreon. It makes a huge difference. You might not know this if you're new to Mark and me, but I'm a one-man team. I produce, do all the interviews, schedule the interviews, conduct the interviews, edit, record, do all my social media as a one-man team. I make no money and it's purely all to go back in to give me the opportunity to get more equipment, to host the podcast on all these different networks and get about and do more and more interviews. It really is an investment that goes straight back into the podcast to give you out there, the listener, more and more episodes. So it really is a win-win. But as you just heard, I'm giving more competition prizes away on there thanks to Vice Press and other companies. I'm doing so much to try and thank you for the support and recognition that you give me via Patreon. And there'll be more and more prizes coming as often as I can. In the meantime, please stay safe. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you all soon. I've been with a few of my cronies One or two pals of mine We went in a hotel, we did very well And then we came out once again And then we went into another That is the reason I'm fooled we had six dochen dorises, then sang a chorus. Just listen, I'll sing it to you. I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town. But there's something the matter with Glasgow, for it's going round and round. I'm only a common old working lad, as anyone can see. But when I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday, Glasgow belongs to me. There's nothing in being teetotal and saving a shilling or two. If your money you spend, 
you've nothing to lend. Isn't that all the better for you? There's no harm in taking a drapping. It ends all your troubles and strife. And it gives you the feeling that when you land home, well, you don't care a hang for your wife. <laughs> That's the feeling you get when you... And I always say that the man, the man that takes a good drink, he's a man. He's a man. Because when you're teetotal, when you're teetotal, when you're teetotal, you've always got a rotten feeling that everybody's your boss. People, you don't realize yet that I stand here as the representative the representative of the man who made the country what it is today, the working man. Fellow workmen, I have been deputed, deputed, not only deputed, but asked to speak on behalf of this working man. Now, these capitalists, these blooming capitalists, millionaires, where did they get their millions from? Us. Yet these are the people, these are the people, the rich, the people with the money. And what do they do? What do they do? What do they do? Us. Yet these are the people, the rich, they're the very first to turn around and condemn a poor working fella. Why? Because they see that poor fella going home on a Saturday night after a hard week's work, just a wee bit drunk. Is he not entitled? Is he not entitled as well as them? Yet they laugh at him. They condemn him. They do. They laugh. They point the skinger of thorn at him. They say, look, look at that common laborer. Intoxicated. Absolutely disgraceful. Under the affluence of alcohol. Disgraceful. Why? What's the poor fellas to do? Heavens, he's got to get home. What about the rich people themselves? It's all right for them. They've got big, fast motor cars. They can go past so quick, you don't know whether they're drunk or sober. But my, I know. I know because I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town. But there's something the matter with Glasgow, for it's going round and round. I'm only a common old working lad, as anyone can see. But when I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday, Glasgow belongs to me.